Oh my goodness, we have had a lot of news when it comes to superhero films and TV shows come out this week. A lot of news coming out this week, as usual. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Nerd Explosion on the Candid Clark podcast. I am your host, the Candid Clark himself, Sean Clark, and I am joined by NAU nerd himself, John Wintrobe. How are we doing this afternoon? Great. We definitely had a lot of superhero news this past week. And what's most amazing is that it was all across the board, not just from DC and Marvel, but from Image Comics as well, which is pretty awesome. Before we jump into the news, a couple of housekeeping things. First of all, I said last week we'd be live on KOJX LP Flagstaff, but the booth is still having some issues. So we are just recording the usual podcast over Zoom. So we'll be in the booth either next week or the week after, just dependent. Keep you updated on that. Also, be sure to check out uh, Cannon Clark podcast on Spotify, uh, thecannonclark.com, where before this podcast is released, John Wintrop has an excellent analysis article on Eureka 7. So be sure to check that out, especially if you have seen the show. I mean, I haven't, and I thought it was still great and not much was spoiled. So it was fantastic. Please check that out. Let's get into this. So Marvel's Spider-Man 3 will, of course, begin filming this next week in New York, in Queens, in fact, exactly where Spider-Man is from in the comics, which is pretty awesome. But even more spectacular is that Benedict Cumberbatch will be reprising his role as Doctor Strange for the film. Benedict Cumberbatch is perfect as Doctor Strange. Every time he's on screen, especially in Avengers Infinity War, you just love his presence on screen. He is becoming quickly one of the most entertaining characters in the entire MCU, and I'm excited to see more of him. I was not expecting Benedict Cumberbatch to be in this film. Obviously, he is going to be in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, which is my most anticipated MCU movie going forward considering it's going to be him and Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlet Witch, which perfection. But the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch in this movie is very interesting. I did not see it coming. And I'm very excited. The main thing I think will happen is that he'll be kind of a mentor figure to Spider-Man since, you know, Iron Man is dead, unfortunately. So I'll be interested to see his role in that. My other thought is that obviously at the post credit scene for Spider-Man Far From Home, uh, everyone knows that he is now Peter Parker, so Spider-Man is, let's just say, is in deep fill-in-the-blank, and Doctor Strange may need to help him with that because this is a bad situation. Yeah, of course, because of Infinity War, Doctor Strange already knew Spider-Man's identity, so it makes sense that Peter would go to him for help. Yeah, it, it does make sense, and I'm excited to see him basically being in the mentor figure because... It's not fully something we have seen yet in the MCU. We had his origin story movie, and then we had a very fun interaction with Thor and Thor Ragnarok. And then in Infinity War, he was he was a leader kind of, but he was more he was more just another superhero that went to that went to Titan. And then in Endgame, you know, we see him just briefly. So we really haven't seen him in this mentor figure at which is pretty great considering where we first saw him in the beginning of Doctor Strange. It's a very satisfying character arc, and I'm just excited to see 
what he does. Yeah. I am slightly worried about the film maybe being a bit bloated because they do have to tackle Peter's identity being out in the public. We're getting Jamie Foxx as Electra. We're going to have Scorpion and Vulture return for the movie. We're going to have Ben the Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. And who knows what else could happen. So I hope that Marvel will be able to balance all of these things for the film. That was something I was worried about for Captain America Civil War, but thank God they handled that well. So I'm personally not too worried. Marvel has a great track record of not making things bloated, unlike Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. So I'm not too worried, but I can't understand that being a slight concern. Of course, this means, since Ben the Cumberbatch is involved with this movie, this means that he'll be filming this before Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which might mean the Multiverse of Madness's production is getting pushed back a bit. Unfortunately. Of course, Spider-Man 3 will be hitting theaters December 17th, 2021, so be excited for that. I know we are. Oh, yes. Just seeing Tom Holland on screen as Spider-Man, not in Devil all the time, it is a treat, and I'm excited just, just to see how they follow apart from home, because, oh, man, that I will never forget seeing that end credit scene where where J.K. Simmons as J. Jones Jameson uh, rose Spider-Man and we know his identity. Like, that was that was insane. I left the theater shook, and I've been waiting to see a resolution to that. And other Marvel Cinematic Universe news, Natalie Portman has revealed that Jane Foster will be battling cancer in Thor Love and Thunder, which, of course, will be the fourth Thor movie directed by Taika Waititi. In the comics, of course, Jane was diagnosed with cancer right before becoming Thor, and being worthy of the hammer allowed her to be cured of all physical ailments, including the cancer itself. It's interesting to see that they're pulling so much from the comics for this movie, and it feels like Taika will have more freedom because of this. What are your thoughts on Thor Love and Thunder, Sean? I know that you love Thor Ragnarok. Well, yeah, because Thor Ragnarok is the best MCU film, in my opinion. I know I'm in this, vi- I'm in this strong minority of that, but that's what I think. So yeah, the fact that Taika Waititi is coming back to do Thor, Love and Thunder, obviously I'm extremely excited. And as far as this news where Jane Foster will be battling cancer, I find it interesting that they're doing this because if you think about it, you have in Thor The Dark World, which is one of the worst MCU films, you have Jane Foster having the ether inside of her and she is ill in Asgard. And now we're seeing her ill once again, the second time in three Thor films, which is honestly very interesting that they're doing this. But it's going to be much more significant than whatever mediocre mess that movie was. As, yeah, she since she is worthy, she now is going to be cured of all ailments. And it makes sense. You know, obviously Thor loves her, even though we didn't see her in Thor Ragnarok at all. And, and that will be... And that will help her to cure her ailments, which will be interesting to see the dynamic of that going forward. Because, I mean, Thor is going to be a little bit weirded out by this, obviously, as right. much as it'll help her. So it's, it's going to be a mess. But what is Taika Waititi's specialty? It is balancing deep emotion with ridiculous stuff. Jojo Rabbit and Thor Ragnarok are two perfect examples of that. And I cannot wait to see how he juggles that in Thor Love and Thunder, which is my second most anticipated MCU film going forward. Yeah. The clarify a bit, um, she only is cured of all f- her physical ailments when she's actually Thor. The second that she puts down the hammer, everything comes back. 
So it's not like her cancer is just magically gone. <laughs> yeah. She still has to deal with it when she's in her human guise. She can't be Thor all the time. She wasn't born Thor like Odinson was. So that's going to create some problems throughout the film, mm-hmm. to say the least. Yeah. I'm very interested to see how um, Taika will have Thor react to the news of Jane being diagnosed with cancer. Because it was a very dramatic moment in the comics. Oh, I bet it was. That's going to be a really tough scene to watch. Obviously, Thor has been through a lot, to say the least. And now we just have another situation for him to deal with. The guy needs a break, man. The, The guy really needs a break. Moving on, of course, to DC Comics. DC Comics had a lot of big news dropping this week. Sadly, none of it was good. (laughs) The Batman, The Flash, and Shazam 2, Fury of the Gods, are getting pushed back. Almost a year for most of them. Matt Reeves' The Batman will now release March 4th, 2022. The Flash gets a new release date on November 4th, 2022. And Shazam, Fury of the Gods, will now release June 2nd, 2023. This is just unfortunate. With all these release games pushed back, that means that we're going to have three DC movies in the span of like a little over a year, somewhere in that time range. That's a bit much. Now, obviously, the MCU has done that themselves, but let's be real. We liked almost every single one that they did. It was Phase 3, which I have to remind you, Phase 3 was Civil War, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok. Black Panther, Doctor Strange, all those films were in Phase 3, and they were releasing three films here during that time, and we all loved it. It was fantastic. But DC hasn't earned that yet. Yes, we have had very good films such as Birds of Prey, uh, Wonder Woman, Shazam, Aquaman, but those are those are good films. I wouldn't say that any of them are fantastic, except for maybe Shazam. I think Shazam is the best DC film in in this modern universe but they haven't really earned like oh yeah here's this release here's this release here's this release in the span of a year so the fact that pushback is upsetting just because you know i want i you know more movies getting pushed back which means less films for us to see in the near future which is unfortunate but what can we do but to, to have that many films come out in that short time is uh, it's not ideal especially when especially when a universe hasn't fully earned that yet yeah, I'm definitely disappointed about the Batman and Shazam 2 getting pushed back, but I'm not the hugest fan or the most excited for this Flash movie since it's based off of Flashpoint instead of something more grounded. I think that it's a bit much to be pushing Flashpoint as the first major Flash movie, but hey, maybe it'll be good. Who knows? But I think that it's good that it's getting pushed back. It'll give them more time to rewrite or work on the movie to make sure it's good. I also want to point out that the that the fourth Matrix movie was pushed forward instead of pushed back. I don't really have any interest in seeing that movie. Look, we have the first Matrix. We don't like, and we have a couple really cool scenes in the second Matrix movie. We don't need more Matrix. Okay, I I get the I get the concept of it, but come on, I want to see Robert Pattinson as the Batman. Come on, like why? Yeah, The Matrix 4 is getting pushed up to December 22nd, 2021 to make room for the bigger budget DC movies. Yeah, but still, uh, I don't, I'm not very interested in The Matrix 4, so that's why I'm bummed by that. The only interest I have in is that Keanu Reeves is coming back for it, but I'm definitely not super excited. (laughs) I mean, obviously Keanu is great, but 
Yeah. Black Adam also was removed from the release schedule. So this does not mean that it was necessarily canceled, but it doesn't have a release date right now. This is probably due to the release dates getting pushed back so far. Like Shazam 2 is coming out in 2023 now. So DC probably doesn't know where Black Adam's going to come out since he's going to directly relate to Shazam. I'm interested. I'm really interested in Black Adam, but it's going to be quite a while. It's unfortunate we don't really the future of that is really unknown but again what can you do yeah stuff happens just the world that we live in now it's 2020 like in sports and everything things get pushed back things happen it's just what we have to deal with yeah and more positive dc news hbo max has officially greenlit the green lantern series this of course will feature Prominent Green Lanterns from the comics, including Guy Gardner, Alan Scott, Jessica Cruz, and Simon Baz. But it's more interesting to point out which Green Lanterns aren't going to be involved with this series, as it seems that Hal Jordan, Jon Stewart, and Kyle Rayner, arguably the three most popular Green Lanterns in the comics, will have no involvement with this show at all. Very interesting. Now, first of all, I have watched plenty of DC animated films, not all of them, but I've seen a, a fair share of them. And I have really grown attached to Hal Jordan, in, in part because he is voiced by one of my favorite actors in Hollywood, Nathan Fillion, who is Hal Jordan. I will not accept anyone else as Hal Jordan. I don't even recognize Ryan Reynolds as him. And we also don't have Jon Stewart, which it seems like they're saving both of them along with uh, possibly Kyle Rayner for the future, like for the films, which we still don't have Green Lantern films yet, which why? But... I've seen this post a lot on Twitter and also Facebook, and I, and I think you, you're you liking it is how I saw it. But you know who would be the perfect John Stewart, the lead actor of Tenet, John David Washington. I think would be so incredibly cool. I am smiling so hard at the thought of at the thought of John David Washington playing John Stewart because John Stewart was the Lantern in the Justice League animated series. And I thought Jon Stewart was one of the stars of that. And honestly, I, I feel like John David Washington would flow right into that role. I think that it would be a seamless transition. Make it half a DC. Like, look, now go and get that done. And Green Lantern will be watched by almost everyone. It will be great. John David Washington played a great Stone Cold character in Tenet. And that's kind of lends itself perfectly to Jon Stewart as he is a military man turned Green Lantern. He's a lot more straight-faced than most of the other Lanterns in DC. And Jon Stewart has even led the Lantern Corps for multiple years in the comics. In fact, I'm pretty sure that he's still the leader right now. Yeah, and the fact that he was able to carry that movie with his charisma, it just shows how talented of an actor he is. But yes, I want to see that. And as far as the show goes... Yes, we are not seeing the three major ones, but we are seeing some really interesting stories, especially from uh, Alan, Alan Scott, who is the first Lantern on Earth, and he is also openly gay, mm -hmm. which is true to the comics, and also... Well, he's only openly gay in the New 52. Rebirth hasn't touched on it because I think that they're uncertain whether or not they want to keep that storyline since he wasn't openly gay up until the New 52 changed that. Okay, so, interesting. It's, Thanks for the I, that's yeah, that's up to whatever DC decides to do. It's very possible that he'll be openly gay in the show, considering that it's its own thing and separate from comic continuity. Yeah, we also have Guy Gardner as well. And 
Also, as far as the production team behind it, so we have Seth Graham Smith, who wrote the Lego Batman movie, is a co-creator of this. And also, we have Mark, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try not to butcher this name, Mark Gungenheim, who was the co-creator of Arrow and a writer on the 2011 Green Lantern film will also be in production for this TV show. Don't know how much optimism that specifically brings in, but I'm hoping it's good. Well, I'll give Guggenheim the benefit of the doubt here because he did write X-Men Gold for Marvel Comics, and X-Men Gold was fantastic. So his comic book writing is great. And the writing for the Green Lantern film really wasn't all that bad. It was mainly the execution of that writing that was terrible. And that has a lot to do with product placement and overuse of CG, like, making Green Lantern suit fully CG instead of practical. Yeah. Oof. So I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. He seems uh, to love the characters. So, and he isn't going to be writing Hal Jordan here. So who knows? Maybe he'll be able to give Guy Gardner, Alan Scott, Jessica Cruz, and Simon Baz justice. I'm very interested to see how the show will deal with Jessica Cruz because she is – the first Green Lantern to openly deal with anxiety and depression. So I'm curious how the show will deal with that. That has a lot of emotional weight that could lend itself perfectly to writing. Oh yeah. If you make a character relatable, that definitely improves the quality of the show. And if they, if they tackle that in a mature manner, I feel like that could really heighten the quality of the show and make it relatable for many to see. Yeah. I'm also interested to see if they'll, um, bring her and Simon Baz's dynamic from the comics onto the screen as well. Because back when DC Rebirth first started, Jessica and Simon shared a Green Lantern title together, and it was actually really good. I was really disappointed when it got canceled just a couple years later. So I'm excited to finally see them together again, even if it is on TV instead of in the comics. Honestly, we have seen a lot of TV shows, especially on the streaming platforms, start to get Green Lantern and be successful. I mean, as soon as Disney Plus has gone up, we've seen, you know, Mandalorian, season seven of the Clone Wars, and then we have this whole stream of MCU TV shows that we're about to have. So we're starting to see TV shows become more focused on in the superhero world, which I do like. It, it allows more stories to be told along with Star Wars stories as well. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with Green Lantern. I'm so disappointed we're not seeing them in films, but TV shows are great too. Uh, we'll probably get the films eventually. I mean, there has to be a reason why Hal and John and Kyle aren't in the show. However, they are using Sinestro and Kilowog. So it's not like popular characters from the Green Lantern Court aren't going to appear in the show at all. Like, Sinestro is going to be the main antagonist. Sinestro was actually the best part of the 2011 Green Lantern film, I think. And just from the animated films that I've seen, Sinestro is probably one of not the most interesting characters in the Green Lantern mythos. He was a Green Lantern. And then he put on the yellow ring and he formed the Sinestro Corps. So he's a very interesting character. I thought Mark Strong played him really well in the film. And I just, I want to see more Sinestro because he's a very fascinating character. Yeah. This show, of course, comes in one among many HBO Max DC shows that have been announced. We're also getting Gotham PD, which is 
a spinoff of Matt Reeves, the Batman that will also be being helmed by Matt Reeves. We're getting a Peacemaker spinoff series of off of the Suicide Squad by James Gunn. We're getting TV show adaptation of Strange Adventures, which is easily my favorite comic on the shelves right now. So I'm excited to see what they'll do with that show. And we're also going to get a Justice League Dark TV series. So DC is definitely stacking HBO Max with content. I'm excited to see how good any of it will be. Absolutely, yeah. You have reviewed every issue of Strange Adventures so far by Tom King, and I know there's going to be a new issue next week. Am I correct in that? Yes. Uh, Tom King has been killing it lately, man. I'm so excited. We're also getting the first issue of his Rorschach comic next week, so I can't wait to read and review those. Oh, yeah. Uh, According to what Winthrop has told me, there's going to be a lot of comics he's going to review next week, so look forward to that. My goodness. I I, I always enjoy... Uh, reading his and editing his comic content. So be sure to check that out. Good, a lot of good stuff coming. Going back to some more Disney-related news, Ewan McGregor has revealed that the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus series will begin filming in March 2021. What are your thoughts on this? All right, well, obviously it's something new in Star Wars, so of course I'm excited for this. Now... Obviously, Kenobi TV series has been pushed back constantly due to Corona, but also production issues. Even before Corona, we had production issues there. So basically, Kenobi TV series, from what I understand, is going to just be a one-season story of Obi-Wan after the events of Revenge of the Sith and before basically the events of his one episode in Rebels, or maybe even including that. We're not fully sure. But I'm just very interested to see his life on Tatooine. It's not something that has been fully explored. The only time we really saw that was, as I mentioned, there's one scene, there's one episode of him in, more like one long scene of him in Rebels where he's hiding out on Tatooine and Darth Maul finds him. And, well, we know what happens after that. But before that, we never really saw like what he was doing. And at the end of Revenge of the Sith, Yoda tells Obi-Wan, how to commune with him, I will teach you. Referring to Qui-Gon, who, who became a Force ghost and learned immortality in the Force, which we saw a whole arc of that in the Clone Wars, which was awesome. So I want to see that explored. I also want to see how we dealt with the aftermath of, you know, his apprentice literally becoming a Sith Lord, which is kind of unfortunate for him. So there's so much they can explore here. And I'm fine with it just being one season. And also Deborah Chow is the, is directing it. And she did episodes three and seven of The Mandalorian, which were two of the three best episodes in The Mandalorian season one. So th- there's nothing but excitement here. I'm extremely excited to see it. It's new canon Star Wars content. I'm not going to complain. I love it. Yeah, they definitely have a lot of freedom to work um, with the series. The only Outside of Rebels, the only other... Um, content that we've gotten about Obi-Wan's time on Tatooine is in the comics, and that was only two, maybe three issues of the mainline Star Wars comic by Marvel. So writer Hasin Amini will definitely have a lot of freedom with the show. Amini has written um, 2011's Drive and 2013's 47 Ronin, so I'm certain that he'll come up with some great stories to tell with this show. I cannot wait for this. Obviously, when it comes to Star Wars, we are about three weeks away from the start of Mandalorian Season 2, so that will be awesome, but any new Star Wars TV show on Disney, on Disney Plus should be great, 
we all know how great season seven of the Clone Wars was. So they've done great so far. Yeah, the Obi-Wan Kenobi Disney Plus series will only consist of six episodes, and since it's slated for production in March of next year, I assume that it will either come out later 2021 or early 2022. I'm more than fine with that. I mean, it's possible we will have three seasons of The Mandalorian by that point. So, so, and I'm not sure how many seasons The Mandalorian will go, but... It'll be something nice after after season three, considering we kind of have a break in movies right now. Because, yeah, it's weird. We don't have a Star Wars movie coming out anytime soon. So that's so we have TV shows to fill in the gap until then. Right. Going back to the more comic book side of things, Amazon finally released the first official trailer for their animated adaptation of Image Comics Invincible. And I am so excited about this. Oh, I am too. Like when I heard J.K. Simmons' voice, I immediately thought to myself, "Okay, I'm sold. He he, he, <laughs> he is not going to do something that like is terrible." Now, this is the case outside of season two of Legend of Korra, which was awful. But except for two episodes, which uh, talk about the first Avatar. But J.K. Simmons as the father of 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 the Invincible Man was incredible. Now, I just have several questions about this. Of course. First, first of all, how is he invincible? Like, do, do we know? Because so, I watched a trailer and I couldn't figure that out. So, Invincible is just the name of the comic. Mark doesn't have an official superhero name that I know of, or at least at the beginning of the series. Um, the comics, and likely the show will as well, follow uh, Mark Grayson who is the main character and who, and he is the son of Omni-Man who is voiced by JK Simmons here. Omni-Man is basically like Superman. He's an alien from outer space that came to earth and Mark is his son. So he has all of the same powers as his father. And that's why he's invincible. He's an alien. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Also, here's the thing. If they're invincible, if they're invincible, you know, that they have like all these powers, my biggest question with the show, it looks fun. And obviously we're, you and I are both going to check it out together when it comes out. But my biggest thing is how, what are the, what are the stakes going to be like? Are there more powerful aliens? Cause that's, that's my biggest worry. Cause obviously anime one punch man did great with, with making with, with uh, the satire, but this isn't like one punch man. So I'm wondering how they're going to, how they're going to race to actually make me fear. That's my biggest concern with the, so- with the show. Yeah, so Invincible's title is meant to be a little ironic. So the characters themselves, power-wise, might be Invincible, but their emotions are not. And the stress they feel under their jobs as superheroes definitely makes them feel far less than Invincible. And that's going to be a big topic the the show covers. Now, the Invincible comics are probably the best comics that Image has ever published, and that writer Robert Kirkman has ever written. Robert Kirkman, of course, is also the writer behind The Walking Dead. So you can expect some similar dark atmosphere and gore to this show, despite it being animated. Okay. Now I feel even better about this show. I, I'm definitely going to check it out. It's going to be it's going to be really fun. I'm very excited. Yeah. The main character, Mark, is voiced by Stephen Ewan, which going back to The Legend of Korra, he was the voice of Avatar Wan for those two good episodes of season two. Stop. Really? <laughs> really. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. I just happened to bring that up. That is hilarious. Yeah. He also voices Keith in Netflix's Voltron Legendary Defender. So I'm very excited. He definitely has the charisma to pull off Mark Grayson. Um, other members of this all-star cast include Jillian Jacobs, Zazie Beetz, Carrie Payton, Zachary Quinto, Walton Goggins, Kevin Michael Richardson, Seth Rogen, Mahershala Ali, and Mark Hamill. So this cast is stacked. <laughs> wow. Now, some of the names uh, j- jumped out. Like, first of all, Mark Hamill. Cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, besides the holiday special, he has been great in basically everything he has done. So I'm looking forward to that. But also, I forgive me for butchering this, but Mer- Ali. Okay, I'm not going to say certain things. I butcher it all the time. I'm not going to be disrespectful here. That's going to be really cool, too. A lot of great names that you just rattled off there. I'm very excited for this. Yeah, the first season will consist of only eight episodes with Justin and Chris Copeland supervising the direction of them. Um, before working on this show, they've only ever been storyboard artists, so this is their first time directing a major production. And the series is set to premiere sometime next year. I'm very excited about this. Uh, again, Invincible is probably the best series that Image has ever published, and it's exciting to see it finally get some much-needed attention, especially since it ended two years ago after 14 years of being written. Wow, that's we're, yeah, we're 144 long. issues. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I highly recommend if anyone is excited for the show, please read the first volume of Invincible. It's fantastic. And Robert Kirtwin, uh, Ryan Otley, and Curry Walker deserve all of the attention they can get. They're fantastic. I, I hope the show lives up to that. I think it will. <laughs> I mean, considering how good The Boys is, which is also another comic book-based show produced by Amazon, I have full faith that they'll be able to do Invincible Justice now. Ah, yes, The Boys. Look forward to uh, look forward to Wintrow's review of that in about a week and a half. Yeah, season two just ended on Thursday night, and it was glorious. I cannot wait to talk about it. Look forward to that. Onto the anime side of our superhero news, My Hero Academia's fifth season received a promo video and a new visual featuring new costumes for some of our characters, particularly Momo, Bakugo, and Shinzo, and a plot point that seems to revolve around some kind of battle between Class 1A and 1B. What are your thoughts on this, Sean? Woo! Seeing this video and the illustration was so incredible. My Hero Academia is one of the best anime that exists. I know we have talked about a lot of deep anime lately and will later in this episode. And I have watched a lot of anime during the course of quarantine. But My Hero Academia is still toward the top of the, of the anime that has existed. The, the characters are some of my favorite anime. Uh, Todoroki is literally my favorite anime character of all time currently, and he's only going to get better. I mean, my favorite TV show character all time is Zuko, and they're, they have a lot of similarities, so it's yeah, not just a totally, bit. <laughs> it's just a bit. Yeah, abusive um, fathers, the scar on half of their face. 
Yeah, and and as a rival, the protagonist at times. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go. But my and also probably my second or third favorite character in all of anime is Bakugo. And we and we see him with a new costume. Uh, a bit a bit more a bit more clothing uh, has more neck protection this time so that looks really cool but the main thing i want to talk about is shinso now the main time we have seen shinso in the anime was in one of the best arcs in anime history the tournament arc in season two of my hero academia and we see shinso as a character who can if someone speak uh, answers a question he can control their minds which he did to Deku until he used one for all to snap out of it and then defeated Shinso in the first fight of the round of 16 in the one-on-one battles before the glorious Deku versus Todoroki fight. And he vowed to become better and a lot of people were cheering him after his fight against Deku. And he buffed up as we saw at the end of season three. And he is out for blood and we see him with a brand new look, beefed up, but he's also wearing what appears to be Aizawa's scarf. Interesting. Yeah, I have a few kind of ideas of what this could mean. Shinzo, of course, has a non-flashy, less heroic quirk, kind of just like Eraserhead. Eraserhead's powers that he can erase quirks, but this isn't very flashy. It just kind of makes people's powers go away. If anything, it decreases the flashiness of the people around him. And Shinzo's power is the same way. It only affects people's minds. It doesn't have this neat, colorful effect. It isn't very visual. So it makes perfect sense for a character like Eraserhead to mentor Shinzo directly, kind of the same way that All Might mentors Deku. Oh, absolutely. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see Shinzo uh, prevalent in season five. He is at the front of the illustration, which means he's going to have a big role in season five, which is good because we mainly only saw him in that one fight in the tournament arc, and we saw him maybe like a little bit before that. So I want to see his character grow more and see more from kind of like Ayama in the last season. And of course, we're also going to get a lot more attention on class 1B and some more the Shinzo. We've only seen the handful of them get even just somewhat fleshed out, namely Tetsu, Tetsu, Kendo, and Monoma. So it'll be exciting to actually get moments with the entire class instead of just a handful of them for a change. I cannot remember her name, but in the quarterfinals of the tournament arc, there was this girl from Class 1B that can control vines. I can't remember her name, but I'll be interested to see more of her because the last time we saw her, she absolutely humiliated Kaminari in front of everyone to see it. It was hilarious. One one of the most hilarious moments of the tournament arc. So I'm really excited to see more of her. I can't remember her name though. Yeah, uh Ibarra is her name. Oh, okay. Thank you. My apologies. But yes, I, I'm excited to see more of her. Tetsu Tetsu is easily my favorite of class 1B so far. He got to really shine in seasons two and three. His fight with uh with Kirishima in the round of 16 was it was incredible. They literally had to arm wrestle to determine the winner, which Karashima just barely came on top. It was so funny. Yeah, My Hero Academia is great. I can't wait for season five. Thank God it's coming out in March instead of having to wait a full year. I can't wait for this. And on my site, I did review season four. So if you're excited for season five, check out my review of season four. 
Uh, My Hero Academia Season 5 will, of course, premiere spring season of anime in 2021 with its English dub streaming exclusively on Funimation. Yes, sir. Let's get into our weekly anime watch. We saw ReZero and JoJo's this week, and oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about. What were your thoughts on ReZero Season 2, Episode 7, Sean? Okay, well, I'll be honest. This was... This was the strongest episode of season two since th- the episode. That's all I'm going to say. Episode, <laughs> episode yeah. four? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about, well, yes, 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 exactly. Well, I was also thinking of, you know, the first episode, which I don't like to talk about. But yes. Yeah, that so, was pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking that, but yes, episode four was also fantastic, but Outside of those two episodes, it's been very difficult for me to get invested in what is going on this season just because I don't care as much about everyone else as not Rem or a, a great episode about or a episode that focused on Super Special, which I'm a sucker for backstory episodes, which is one reason why Golden Wind for JoJo's is great because it has a lot of backstories. So it's been a bit it's very difficult for me to get invested in the situation like you know, I don't care about Garfield. I don't care about Rom that much because I'm sorry, I don't like Rom, not at all. She she literally gives me anxiety, and I hate and I hate that. That's quite but, the, the the change of uh, opinion since the second episode. Because <laughs> I remember you raving about how much you liked Rom when I told you that she was going to have a larger part in the season. How the tables have <laughs> how the tables have turned. <laughs> well look that's because that's because i thought she was going to be a nicer person but oh boy was uh-huh. i wrong about that so that was that was that was more me being foolishly optimistic it was more than like crazy i just want to that was, that was more me being foolishly optimistic but oh my gosh this episode was was actually really good so we find out that beatrice was the traitor uh, oh it grinded my gears i have never liked her anyways I swear, if she says, I suppose, one more time, if she says that one more time, I'm going to blow. Anyways. <laughs> uh, but yes, everything she reads from a book, which is a book from the witch's cult, which means that she is the traitor. That's the gospel specifically. Yes. And I know we're going to discuss it later, but I just want to I just want to say something, Jen, before we discuss it further. Uh, Otto and Subaru, wholesome content. Yeah, Otto is best boy now. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, who knew that Koichi had a heart, man? That's all I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, Zach Aguilar did a pretty good job this episode. But before we get to that, we gotta discuss um, what happens with Garfield. Because, of course, after Beatrice tells Subaru about the gospel and is unwilling to answer any of his other questions, Elsa kills him. Going back to our spawn point, and now we get new moments with Garfield. Garfield he's great Garfield is I hate him such a great guy he's so helpful I mean he's he's advancing the plot so much by trapping Subaru in a room for three days (laughs) dude he is terrible I hate him like Subaru tells tells him, and I can't remember what the other girl's name was. I am not the best. Ryuzu. Ryuzu. I apologize. But he tells both of them, I want to do the trial for me, considering I did the first part. And then they he, he, he kidnaps Subaru and locks him away for three days. Yeah, this is, of course, due to Subaru's 
being bashed in the witch's scent, which we've seen happen in season one. I mean, that's the reason why Rem killed him in episode four of season one. Um, and it's because of his peculiar relationship with the witch of envy. <laughs> um, so it's understandable that they're a little distrustful or suspicious of him, but this is a little much. You think? I mean... It's not the worst thing that has happened to Subaru because of the witch's scent. Because remember, Rem and Rom killed him over the witch's scent in episodes three and, or not three, episodes four and five and six of ReZero's first season. So. Oh, episode six. How angry I was at you after that episode. Like, you can, like, I saw you constantly tweeting about Rem and saying how great she is, and then she just murders Subaru. And episode six, and I have almost never been so mad in my life. <laughs> well, to be fair, she technically only murders him in episode five because it's Rom that actually murders him in episode six. Okay, my bad. It was episode because it's the magic because it's the magic that hits her. But the reveal that Rem killed him is in as at the end of episode five or the beginning of episode six. So okay, I mean she's yeah. equally guilty. <laughs> Yeah, but how they redeemed her and then, you know, episode 18 happened and yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know how it is. We know we know how it goes. I love Rem. We, all, we both love Rem. She's awesome. Yes, she is. Anyway, continue with your thoughts about the episode. So Subaru is, of course, trapped there for three days. Um, and after three days, he's finally rescued by best boy Otto. Oh, oh my God. what a good boy. So the Otto and Subaru have a kind of an awkward conversation where basically, where basically he tells Subaru like that. Oh, I, I was I was helping I was helping a friend in need, and Subaru was like, like like who like who like who sent you? And then he was like, but you but you're my friend, something like that. But yeah, he, basically how the conversation goes is that Otto like tells Subaru that he's here to save a friend. Subaru, of course, being oblivious to this, just like he was with Rem in season one, is like, what friend? I'm the only one here. <laughs> but, but you are my friend, though. Yeah, and Aww. it's very sweet. And, of course, this causes Subaru to burst out laughing because of how shocked he is by Otto's sense of loyalty for him, despite the kind of mischievous, money-making attitude Otto has had since his introduction in season one. Yeah. It's uh, very sweet. Yeah, that was the wholesome content I signed up for with this show. Yeah. And of course, the two make their escape, and Garfield realizes Subaru is gone and starts to transform into a demi human. And at, um, earlier in the show, um, Garfield mentions the Subaru that he and um, Frederica are only half siblings, having different parentage. Which means that Garfield is a different demi-human than Frederica is. And we kind of see that. He has these kind of large, ferocious claws while Frederica had paws. And it makes me think that he might be a bit wolf-like in his demi-human appearance instead of um, cat-like um, like Frederica is. Uh-oh. This could be a potential problem going forward. I mean, it can't be any worse than Elsa barging into the mansion and killing everyone, can it? I mean, you're not wrong. This, this is, is the true. least of our worries right now. <laughs> this the is bigger, 
the bigger conflict is Amelia dealing with the trials and Elsa attacking the mansion. I think Garfield is a little low on the priorities here. True, but he's still a nuisance who I just want to go away. I could care less. I couldn't care less about him. Just go away. I'm hoping he gets some kind of a redemptive arc because it seems like his character has a lot of depth that the show could tackle in future episodes. But yeah, for now, he just needs to get out of Subaru's way. Exactly. Like, you've got bigger fish to fry here, buddy. Stop puffing yourself up. You're there, no- are, there are maids that are about to be killed. <laughs> and we need to stop this. <laughs> yes. It was, a, it was a, it felt like a very short episode. Yeah. Uh, it was great, though. It was, it was definitely it was- one of the better episodes of this season. I'm very excited to see what they do with episode eight next week. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was emotionally invested in this episode because, like, like I said, some of the previous ones, it was difficult for me to get emotionally invested because I don't care about Because in some ways, uh, you may completely disagree with me, but I just had this thought. In some ways, ReZero is a lot like Code Geass in the sense that most of the characters aren't likable. But unlike Code Geass, there is a couple characters that you really do care about, and that's, and that's a big difference. But I couldn't help but think of that because, yeah, most of the characters in ReZero are not likable. Well, I think... A lot of that has to do with their motivations constantly getting in the way of Subaru, and that's because Subaru is a normal dude. He doesn't quite understand the goings about of this land still, despite. I actually, now that I think about it, hasn't Subaru only been in Lagunica for like a month at this point? Maybe two yep. months. Two months. Yeah, so it's kind of understandable that he's getting treated the way that he is. To be fair. That is true, but still. I, 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 can't, I can't help but make that comparison. Yeah. And lastly, I'll mention that Zeno Robinson did a really good job as Garfield this episode. Despite all of the hate we have for him, I can't deny that most of that hate is attributed to how good his performance was. Yeah. It, Zeno Robinson is very good. Obviously, we were introducing him as Hawks in My Hero Academia at the end of season four, which, whoo, those last two episodes were fantastic. But yes, he is also great one too. As much as I just want to punch Garfield in the face and just get him out of the way and just erase him from existence. I wish Gluttony erased him from existence and not, you know, Rem. Big sad. But Garfield needs character development. Rem already had her full arc. Does he though? Uh, I mean, a great development yes, would be he if he disappears. Uh, but he has so much potential depth. I mean, him and Frederico's relationship seems to be um, very rich, and I actually like um, how they're going about with him. Despite him getting in Subaru's way, I think that hurdles are important. And from ReZero's writing, I'm pretty sure that they're not just going to leave characters like Garfield and Rom unlikable forever. Prove me wrong, show. Prove me wrong. It probably will. Let's be real here. I mean, the show's already starting to make you sympathize with Amelia. So, eh, somewhat, somewhat, but a little bit. Yes, I will give you that a little bit, but still, no. All right, moving on to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Golden Wind episode oh, 36. No. Yeah, things are starting to get really bad as we get closer to the end of Golden Wind. We, of course, lost another member of our party last week in Narancia. Rest in peace, Narancia. But this week, 
we now have to deal with not just Silver Chariot Requiem, but also King Crimson as the group tries to figure out where Diavolo is hiding. What are your thoughts on this episode, Sean? Uh, <laughs> I'll admit the writing for this episode was point on and maybe the best written episode of Golden Wind so far. Because basically you have, you have Trish, you have Mista, you have Bruno, and you have Giorno obviously with the swap bodies outside of Giorno. And they're basically trying to figure out where Diablo is hiding, which means they have to be in one of their bodies. So Diablo is in one of their bodies. And there's a lot of tension about uh, who to investigate, who to search, where is Diablo? So I love how written the episode was. And obviously Ponoref the turtle is existing. And the, the, the turtle started looking really weird. Yes, weird things are happening here. Yes, so apparently, uh, we of course already know that Silver Chariot Requiem can manipulate people's souls, as shown in the previous couple episodes. But it seems that it is now creating whole new people. And, like, I don't understand how this works, but I'm going to just go with it. Yeah, it's a bit ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, then again, it's JoJo's. I shouldn't try to think too hard about some logical things. The show but... is bizarre in its title. Like, let's be real here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like just, just go back to Battle Tendency. Like, and it still doesn't make any sense how on Earth the cars was launched into outer freaking space. But yes, it happened. Well, yeah. you, you just got to go with something. The show yeah. is weird. We've watched... 149 episodes of JoJo. That's how many so, episodes we're up to now? Yeah. Holy so, crap. <laughs> so I think that we have a good grasp on how weird this show can get. <laughs> yeah. There, there's weird examples. In, uh, I, I, I know. I know. Yeah. Of course, from summoning their stands, we learned that King Crimson is residing inside well, I guess technically it's Mista's body, but he's bonded with Trish because Trish is inside Mista's body. Which uh, led to some tension because, you know, to not let Giorno search the body. And Bruno was like, hey, uh, hey, you can you can search me first. And then that's when Diavolo comes out. Yeah. And it also makes sense as to why Trish couldn't sense Diavolo because with his soul residing inside the same body as hers she probably just assumed it was her own soul that she was sensing which should have been kind of obvious that king crimson would do that because the only way he could shield himself so yeah should have been kind of obvious from the start i think i mean maybe but like they could have just assumed that he was in some random person's body across rome considering that how large widespread this is Considering that Silver Chariot Requiem's range seems to be as big as the entirety of Italy at this point. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, insane things are happening to Silver Chariot Requiem. Which, can you imagine? Watching Starter's Crusaders and then like, oh, yeah. So two parts later in part five, uh, Silver Chariot's getting an upgrade. Oh, yeah. Uh, Polnarf's going to be dead inside a turtle. Oh, also, he's going to control people's sins. Also, he's going to allow people's bodies to mutate. Just imagine telling someone who just saw Starter's Crusaders that for the first time. 
Yeah, I can't imagine. Especially considering how more streamlined the stand abilities were in Stardust Crusaders. They were pretty straightforward most of the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> definitely not as creative as the stuff that we've seen in Golden Lent. Um, Good God. Yeah. Of course, in order to control the body that Diavolo is hiding in, he grabs hold of Trisha's stand Spice Girl after she summons it and uses it to control Mista's body like a puppet. Which was rough to watch. Yeah. Of course, King Crimson realizes that Silver Chariot is only merging people's souls using his shadow, and that shadow must be being created by a white source, but it isn't connected to the sun, because the shadow doesn't directly match. So he realizes that it has its own white source, and by destroying it, he defeats Silver Chariot Requiem. Very easily, which was terrifying to see. Yeah, this of course means that he also now has the, the stand arrow within his grasp, which is really, really bad. <laughs> I mean, we've seen what it did to Silver Chariot. Can you imagine what it could do to King Crimson? I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. Luckily, Jorno is smart <laughs> and uses the same technique that Polnareff used back in episode 33 to track King Crimson's movement. Um, cunning his finger to drop blood and using uh, blood drops to tell when time has been skipped. How did he learn how to use that trick, though? Ah, Paul Nareff probably just told him off screen. We just gotta go with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know when he had time to do that, but whatever. Yeah, let's just I can go buy with it. it. Yeah. Um, Jorno, of course, converts the blood that dropped onto King Crimson from his hand into a colony of ants which chew through the arrow shaft so that the arrowhead falls onto the ground. Very, very creative. It, when I was watching that moment, I couldn't help but think of something that we talked about earlier. It reminded me of that one uh, scene in My Hero Academia where uh, Coda rolls the bugs through the ground onto present Mike because, you know, present Mike was shouting their ears off. So the only way that present Mike couldn't track the, the noise was under the ground. So it was a, it was a nice like callback there. So I, I couldn't help but notice the comparison there. Yeah, it's possible that the scene from My Hero was inspired by JoJo's. I wouldn't count that out, <laughs> considering how much JoJo's has inspired anime in general. Of course, with the arrowhead falling on the ground, King Crimson tries to pick it up. But before he can do so, Trish uses Spice Girl's rubbery making elasticity whatever to knock the arrow back towards the group there's just so much tension like who's gonna how, who's gonna get the arrow who's gonna get the arrow who's gonna get the arrow and I'm not sure if you mentioned this yet but because you've mentioned this while we watched it but in the opening the arrow is split in half yes when Jorno picks it up in the opening and then seemingly uses it on golden experience and throughout this whole scene, the arrow is actually in half now. Yeah. The episode ends with King Crimson punching through Spice Girl and using the force of that punch to propel the body and thus both Trish and his own souls towards the arrow. And the episode ends with Bruno inside Diavolo's body screaming for Trish. What it was a cliffhanger. We both looked very annoyed, like, oh man, that's the episode right there. Well, gosh darn it. Yeah. Oh. And 
I'm pretty sure that the next three episodes are going to be the final major fight of the show with uh, Silver Chariot Requiem now out of the way. They just have to deal with King Crimson. I wasn't expecting the final showdown of King Crimson to be this. I mean, then again, we didn't see any of this coming. So I'm very interested to see how this unfolds. Yeah, I will say that this finale is about as weird as the Bites to Dust finale in, in DIU. <laughs> so yeah, oh. this is par for the course here. <laughs> yeah, the, the whole Bites to Dust. Like, I mean, first of all, like when Kira got the, the stand arrow there, that was OP. So if King Crimson gets it, oh, Lord, I don't even want to imagine that. So I'm I'm very interested to see what happens after the cliffhanger. And I'm also assuming that now Servitor Requiem is defeated that everyone's souls are going to go back into their bodies. Hopefully that happens soon because it's confusing! But also, um, lastly, the note, it seems that Dopio is, is a little sad without the Avo with him because he is trapped in Bruno's body probably about to die. So, mm, yeah, he did. Big, big he, sad. Poor Dopio. Eh. <laughs> Whatever, man. I feel bad. He's innocent in all this. He's been forced to do all this bad stuff for his main personality. It's awful. And it's a shame that the only freedom he gets is in death. Well, okay, now that you put it like that, that's that is sad. But yeah. we didn't see I didn't see enough of him to be emotionally invested. Yeah, that's a good point. But this also probably means that Bruno's may finally die in the next episode? Maybe? Possibly? I don't know, man. At this point, it feels like they're stretching Bruno out just a little too much for my taste. I think he should have died a couple of times before now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I like Bruno a lot. He's a great character. He might even be my favorite character in Golden Wind, but like, this is a little much. Yeah, I, I expect him to kick the bucket soon. I imagine that it will be within the next two episodes. I mean, it has to. It's not like – I don't think Iraqi's going to let Bruno live. Like, <laughs> with all of this death foreshadowing, there's no way. Yeah, if he does, like, that would be – that would just be, like, a, a, a cheap shot. Yeah, this would be a little – it would be a little much. Not going to lie. Yeah, it definitely would. That is going to do it for episode six of Nerds Potion on the Candy Clark podcast. Be sure to check out Candy Clark Spotify, thecandyclark.com. Like I said, uh, John Winter uh, just wrote in an analysis article on Eureka 7. So be sure to check that out. It was very, it was very good. Uh, also, Look forward to all the comic uh, content that is coming out next week. Apparently, there's a lot of good stuff. What specifically yeah. are we looking forward I'll to? I'll be, yeah, for Wednesday, I will be reviewing Strange Adventures number six and Warshack number one, both written by Tom King and from DC Comics. And I'll also be reviewing Commanders in Crisis by Steve Orlando from Image Comics. So get excited for that. I am very excited and cannot wait to talk about them. They're, I imagine that all three are going to be fantastic. From what I've heard. Be sure to check those out. I was your host, the Cannon Clark himself for John Winthrop. Have a great rest of your day and be sure to always nerd out.